Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. We are neurologists, scientists, and authors of two best-selling books and parents to two amazing humans. In a world where our understanding of brain health is constantly evolving, join us as we unravel the mysteries of the human brain. Through captivating conversations, insightful interviews, and thought-provoking discussions, we empower you with the knowledge and tools to optimize brain function and prevent cognitive decline. From nutrition, exercise, restorative sleep, to building cognitive resilience and the impact of technology, we explore the fascinating connections between brain health and other facets of our lives. Get ready to unlock the potential of your brain and embrace a life of vitality. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast. Uh, we hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for joining us today. The topic of today's discussion is proton pump inhibitor and its relationship with risk of dementia. So this is a very interesting topic. Um, why is it interesting? Because so many people, especially in Western countries, mm -hmm. use proton pump inhibitors, or these are medications that are acid blockers or medications that are used for uh, gastric esophageal <clears throat> reflux disease or GERD, uh, as it's known. Yeah, I mean, um, in the last decade or so, we've become aware of the interaction of the GI system and our health in general, whether it's immunity, whether it's uh, uh, the brain, its effect on the brain, whether it's um, nutrient absorption, whether it's uh, long-term diseases, like even immunological diseases of rheumatoid arthritis in weird ways and thyroid and, and, and so many other diseases in, in indirect and direct ways being linked to the GI system. And it makes sense. It's the ultimate interface between the outside and the inside, and it's right there. Everything goes through it. And it's not a benign interface. It's, a, it's as active an interface as you can imagine. The, your stomach has a pH of nearly two. Mm -hmm. I mean, the average pH being seven, above that is alkaline, below that is acid. The body's uh, pH, uh, the blood pH is about 7.4, and it maintains that perfectly. That's a clue for something we'll talk about later, as far as these alkaline waters and things of that nature. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. So, so the pH is maintained tightly around 7.4, mm -hmm. and if it goes up and down, that's a whole set of metabolic disorders that that we've studied so much in medical school True. yeah <clears throat> but your your stomach has a very low ph and on top of that has trillions of microorganisms which are they outnumber our own cells yeah and they're they're actually active in our health <clears throat> so here, and then most of the absorption happens there as well, including B12 and other things. And then after the stomach, you have the small intestine and the large intestine where there's more absorption, especially water. But the stomach is a major source of interaction. Mm -hmm. And if you're altering that pH... Constantly. Constantly, let's say with these medicines, you know there's something happening long-term. I mean, I, I know that we... we pride ourselves in not jumping ahead of the data, True, it's not important. extrapolating. But mm -hmm. in the, even in this conversation, I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself. But but I just want to give a picture of this incredibly uh, tightly controlled GI system with the microorganisms that are affected with slight changes in pH. And, and then you alter it with drugs. And as much as one third of Americans mm -hmm. have 
the symptoms of what they call GERD, which is a gastroesophageal reflux, which means that this acid comes back up into the esophagus mm-hmm. okay, <clears throat> or uh, excessive acid buildup. And as a result, we take medications for that. Yeah. So that's going to have consequences. And uh, I want to set that stage because that stage is everything. That's, that's our life, our brain, our health, our immune system, everything. And just because we can get rid of a symptom, and that's not just for this disease, but all disease, just because we get rid of a symptom, it doesn't mean you've gotten rid of the underlying problem. We talk about this often uh, as far as pain management. I, we can manage any pain. You give me the pain, I can have a medication to get rid of it. But why did you have pain? Mm. Finding the underlying cause. I, if there's inflammation, I can get rid of it. But just because you've hidden the symptom, it doesn't mean you've gotten rid of the underlying cause. And so our finding the underlying cause is critical. Right. So with the GI system, again, one third of Americans, and that, that number is increasing. Yeah. And that's a clue, lifestyle. One third of Americans are having either excessive acid buildup or reflux, and it's painful. I've had that experience a couple of times. I used to have that more before I went uh, you know, healthy. Um, uh, but like 20 years ago, I was young. After those New York pizzas. Oh, my goodness. Oh, <laughs> but, but, but those pizzas, because of cheese and everything. I also had migraines, and I had reflux, and I had burn. Um, uh, the hot dog, same thing. <clears throat> so, and then guess what? Either it was Pepto-Bismol or, or acid Or a week blockers. of Zantac. Or yeah. Like that, yeah. So, so that's, that's where we are right now. And, and this topic became interesting this, this, the last couple of weeks because a paper came out that said, and we're going to get into that more, yes. that these PPIs or proton pump inhibitors, and we'll give you examples of them, might actually increase your risk of Alzheimer's. Yeah, which is so strange. <clears throat> so from here on, if you hear us say PPI, we're talking about proton pump inhibitors. It's quite a mouthful, so we'll refer to them as PPIs. But yeah, the a paper was published in the Journal of Neurology. We call it the Green Journal, and it's uh, I think it's you know very very prominent uh, journal for neurologists and people in the field of neurology and neuroscience. And um, the title was Cumulative Use of PPIs and Risk of Dementia the atherosclerosis risk in community study. So the ERIC is a database that has been mined and evaluated uh, quite often to look at the association between atherosclerosis and chronic diseases of aging. And so um, basically in this community, um, multiple points of evaluation happened and it started back in the 1980s and uh, went through 2017. I think they're still collecting data, mm-hmm. but for this particular uh, paper, they looked at data from 1987 to 2017, <clears throat> and they looked at people reporting annually whether they were taking some sort of a proton pump inhibitor or not. And a total of 5,712 people were evaluated at the last visit, which was visit five. Um, and their ages were, the mean age was 75, uh, the mean uh, or the median follow-up time period was 5.5 years. And they found out that people who used proton pump inhibitors had a higher risk of developing dementia during the follow-up years. And the percentage was 33%. So 33% higher risk of developing dementia. Which is significant. Which is high, which yeah. is high. But you know why it's really intriguing? It's because this is not the only database that has shown that 
uh, relationship. There have been multiple other findings as well. And um, Dean and I sat down and um, I actually mined 15 really good high quality papers. And some and of them were actually review papers. Some of them were systematic, uh, systematic reviews and meta-analyses, which means they actually looked at a lot a lot of other papers and different databases and put them together and ran statistics to find out the cumulative results. And it showed, most of them showed that this relationship was significant, which means that people who took PPIs on a regular basis had a higher risk of developing dementia. And so in this episode, we are going to you know parse the data out and talk to you all about um, why and what are some of the mechanisms that happen? And Dean actually started it beautifully by, you know, giving an, um, a picture of what goes on in our uh, gut and in our stomach lining and the acidity and the low pH and how these medications can change the dynamics uh, significantly. In this study, though, one one unique thing was that uh, the the significance was found only after a particular period of time, four point four years or something like that. Right. <clears throat> yes, and that significance was not found before then. So um, again, I, I, we as always we say that even a few papers does not mean that this is conclusive. But in this case, there's been enough papers to kind of really increase our suspicion that there is a relationship between uh, PPIs, uh, chronic use of PPIs for four years or more in this case, yes, um, uh, and significant use of it and uh, long term cognitive decline or uh, Alzheimer's to be uh, particular. Before we go on, just in case, I just wanted to give you some examples of these PPIs. Uh, omeprazole, or another name for it is Prilosec, Esomeprazole, um, uh, uh, or Nexium, uh, Lansoprazole, or uh, Prev uh, Prevacid. These are common drugs that are used. We give prescription. We have been given prescription in the past. Thank goodness we don't do a lot of it because we've been neurologists. But I have uh, given uh, this medication to people in the past. But most people <clears throat> who come into the hospital um, are given uh, PPIs, especially those in my in my field. Stroke, um, when they come into the hospital, uh, whether they have acid reflux or not, they're given PPIs because PPIs can actually prevent um, um, regurgitation and uh, difficulty with swallowing. And whenever the body's under a lot of stress, um, you know, the stomach lining gets excoriated and people actually start producing a whole lot of acid. So as a preventive measure, PPIs are used consistently in the hospital setting for almost all kinds of medical issues. Yeah. And, and the reflux is not inconsequential because your esophagus is not designed to take that kind of acid. So it burns and changes the, the, uh, the cellular structure, there's a concept called Barrett's esophagus, where the cells of the uh, of esophagus change that the bottom, and, yes. and the chance of uh, cancers go up. So these are um, uh, things that people have to deal with when it, when it comes to um, uh, reflux. So what else do we have as far as treatment? We have the uh, the uh, H2 blockers, yeah, the um, histamine, histamine blockers. blockers that actually have been shown to be helpful. We have the coating things like the Pepto-Bismol that coat the stomach lining. So uh, that that's another fate and absolutely correct, yes. correct. And then lifestyle, um, which is things that exacerbate uh, reflux, you avoid those, right? And those are things like chocolate for some, caffeine, smoking, smoking, mm -hmm. alcohol, yeah, 
to, uh, um, too much oil <clears throat> or too much fat in the diet, especially, especially saturated fat. fat. Yes, exactly. Can actually increase the risk of uh, mm. reflux. Yes. What about uh, things like peppers and things of that nature? Uh, some people say it does. Some people say it doesn't. But there seems to be some relationship. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, the percentage of people who have some sort of sensitivity to particular foods like black pepper or citrus fruits, um, it's, uh, it's, you know, that they're, they're very small in number, but usually people react to um, citrus fruits and some spices in food if they already have right. some sort of a gastric ulcer or some sort of, you know, a weakness in the barrier, in the stomach barrier. So um, I think it's almost a myth, you know, whenever, whenever we used to talk to some of our elderly relatives, you know, whenever they would have reflux disease, they would stay away from anything that was either um, spicy or citrusy, thinking that it would actually exacerbate the symptoms. But I, I think we know now that that may not be the case. Well, at least for majority, that may not be the case. It's interesting now that we know this, this because a few years ago we didn't make this relationship, did we? Yes. Did this? But now looking back, I, because every time patients come in, we we collect their their medications, and I tell you, so many of my patients, uh, not that that that's a conclusion that because they did take PPIs that they developed Alzheimer's and they came to me, but but uh, looking at those patients, uh, lots of them had been taking PPIs throughout their life. But that's just a relationship of aging as well. So yeah. Yeah, and I think I think we can. This is a good segue to kind of uh, start discussing the mechanism of why that happens. Um, I, I, I wanted to actually talk about some cases. Um, sure. Um, uh, some uh, some patients of mine, because the, just to give a picture for people to see. Um, so uh, we'll just name one of the patients, um, John, who was fifty-five years old. Um, we we. This, this patient came to me with um, some minor memory problems. Uh, it, it, it qualified for MCI or mild cognitive impairment, which is a, a significant diagnosis because MCIs have a higher tendency, proclivity to go on to develop dementia. But the dominant issue for him was um, acid reflux. Mm -hmm. And it had been the dominant issue for more than 20 years. He was a little overweight. Um, he had a terrible relationship with food. That's mm -hmm. the way I, I describe it. He uh, he ate poorly. He ate lots of fatty food. Um, uh, he didn't take care of his health. He, he didn't sleep well. That's another thing uh, that's been associated. Uh, be, um, uh, and and so he had reflux on a daily basis. He had burned this horrible burning sensation in the center of his chest <clears throat> that he described. And and he tried everything from. The, uh, the coating um, things like Pepto and uh, to um, um, uh, the PPIs. Um, and for 20 years, he had been on this medication. Wow. And in his case, when and this will speak to mechanism, uh, when we checked him, um, one of the first things we do when we, people come in for memory problems is we check thyroid, we check B12, we check MMA, which is methylmalonic acid, which is downstream product of uh, usage of MMA, uh, B12. We check folate. We check um, 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 uh, other neuro, um, things like uh, hemoglobin A1C for diabetes and prediabetes. We check lipids, and and he had all of them abnormal. Mm. Uh, his his uh, B12 was very low mm -hmm. in the 112 range, which is which okay. means that most probably he had been at that range for a long time, and mm. was also and his hemoglobin A1C was 8.3 or something. It was very high, which and and the normal is usually less than 5.6. Correct, exactly, and and so 
he had been in this state of diabetes. He had borderline, well, he's actually past borderline. And, and he had the low B12 and, and probably for a long time. And when, when I did the neuro exam, he had loss of sensation in his toes. Which so is he already had developed neuropathy? Probably be, be, be a combination of B12 deficiency and um, uh, 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 diabetes. And so he had symptoms that he wasn't even aware of. He was having balance problems because mm. what happens is you lose balance issues. Large fibers. Correct, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, and every system was affected. And, and the reality was that because of his relation with food and also the fact that he was using PPIs, mm. it was probably affecting that. The, the, the weight and excessive weight and, and uh, cholesterol that doesn't affect B12. What affects B12 is usually either you're not eating it in your diet. Mm -hmm. In his case, that wasn't the case. He was eating the kind of food that would give him enough B12 mm -hmm. or the fact that B12 was being blocked or not absorbed because of the uh, something that was happening in the GI system. Mm -hmm. So he had started to decline. Thank goodness we caught it early. Yeah. Uh, we, we made sure that his diet changed. And we'll talk about that in a little more detail later. We slowly transitioned them lower and lower amounts of PPIs and other medications, including um, uh, coating the, um, uh, chemicals, and <clears throat> gave them B12. Yeah. And things started improving. Mm. And, but that's a rarity to catch somebody that early. And, 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 and the reality is that when things go wrong that badly because of food and because of you know, which affects blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, everything. By the way, he also had uh, cholesterol in the 280s. Mm -hmm. Then by the time they get to me, often it's a little too late. Yeah, yeah. But in, uh, thank goodness in his case, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the time we were done, about a year later, he wasn't using any PPIs. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the remarkable it's, thing. It that, really is. That, yeah. I love those, those kind of changes. And, you know, you and I are very careful about not sounding um, too uh, bombastic and not to exaggerate the effect of a, a particular intervention, but my goodness, when it comes to the impact of diet on GERD, yeah. I, I, I can't even count the number of my patients who have actually improved their symptoms would by you, just changing their diet. Would you say that of all the diseases, the one that responds quickest and most dramatically, I mean, we talk about Within migraines. weeks. I mean, I, yes. the effect Couple of, of weeks. The nutrition on my migraine was amazing and, and others as well. Um, effect on blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes. But I think nothing responds better to uh, diet, dietary change and lifestyle change than GERD. Yeah, uh, Esophageal agree. reflux. So unless there's a structural abnormality where the stomach has gone through the diaphragm and you know they have to do surgery and all that. But outside of that, it, it is so easily responsive. Uh, so people shouldn't just have to live with it. Get it evaluated, change your diet, find out if it's not a structural abnormality and your life will change. Yeah, I agree with you. <clears throat> Yeah, no, I, I get really excited about the impact of diet on um, acid reflux. Great. That was a great uh, case presentation. Um, all right. So moving on, um, just like your patient, um, people, you know, if it's caught early, then one can do something about it. Um, I also want to um, frame this conversation by making sure that people don't um, get scared because PPI use is so common. Yeah. You know, I, I, you and I know so many of our relatives who are on PPI. Um, and, and this discovery is going to perhaps change our uh, way of thinking about PPIs in the future. Um, but 
it's not a very direct causal relationship. So, you know, we want people to know that, um, you know, people who take PPIs may have other risk factors that could contribute to cognitive impairment and PPI may not be alone the motivating or the um, the egregious the factor in factor. their in yeah. their life, um, because people get scared, you know. Yes. Um, yes. Again, we repeat the 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 case for PPI being causal for dementia has not been uh, ratified. It has not been solidified. We're not one hundred percent sure. As Aisha beautifully stated right now. They're often confounds, yes. which means that we're thinking it's this relationship, but the reality is in a person who's uh, taking PPI, they have so many other factors of, uh, that are affected in their life, as I gave the example of the uh, case right now. They also have, because of their lifestyle factors, they also have diabetes, cholesterol. So it could be those things yes. and not the PPIs. Although in most of these studies, they try to control for all those factors, but there's no way you can control for every factor. So um, I want people to know that this was not, the point was not to tell people to completely avoid it. True. It's a warning, that's mm -hmm. the way science works. It's a strong relationship that we are aware of. And also the fact that we know that for majority, not all, lifestyle has a very important part and we can do something about it until we're much more certain. In the meantime, people might have to use PPIs for short term. And by the way, there's been no study that, no meaningful study, that's shown relationship of dementia or cognitive decline and short-term use of PPIs. Yes. That's not been the case. That That is very true. <clears throat> and most of the studies that have shown this relationship, uh, these were, you know, large observational studies where people were followed for years and years and, you know, close to decades. And a PPI use was associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, there are a lot of other papers and we could potentially dive deeper into the research, but I just wanted to kind of give you guys an idea. Yeah, um, you know, so so the the relationship or the hazard ratio or risk risk ratio of PPI use in dementia ranges from anywhere being, you know, a few percent uh, increased risk to as much as 44% increased risk. Um, and there have been some really good large studies. Um, uh, the one that I was reading earlier before um, starting this podcast was uh, a paper that was published in 2016. And all of these references will be noted in um, the podcast notes section, so you can read it if you'd like to. Um, and so JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, the title was Association of PPI with Risk of Dementia, a Pharmacoepidemiological Claims Data Analysis. So claims data is um, looking at, you know, health insurance companies and um, diagnoses. And this was done in one of the largest uh, cohorts uh, studies from 2004 to 2011, and it was specifically in Germany. And so the results were assessed in close to 74,000 participants, 75 years um, and older, and they found that PPI users had a 44% higher risk of developing uh, dementia compared to non-users, which was pretty significant. And there are many other papers that uh, show similar relationship between PPI use and uh, dementia. Um, so moving on, I think we should talk about the proposed mechanisms next. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what are the ways that a proton pump inhibitor can increase the risk of 
Alzheimer's disease or dementia, uh, in, in particular Alzheimer's disease. Um, and uh, the first one that you touched on was vitamin B12 deficiency. Um, we do have evidence that people who use PPIs chronically, um, they, it can reduce their stomach acid, which is necessary for absorption of vitamin B12. And um, that's why vitamin B12 could potentially go down when people are getting rid of that acidity in the stomach. Right. And B12 is a very strong, uh, low B12 levels are strongly correlated with cognitive decline and dementia. Absolutely. Um, another one um, that has been uh, you know, looked into as a correlative data is when people are using proton pump inhibitors, they usually have either a lot of other medication on board for mm -hmm. other risk factors, whether they be high blood pressure or high cholesterol or diabetes medication or medication for inflammation or autoimmune conditions and things of that nature. So the use of PPI is essentially a proxy of disease burden. Mm -hmm. People are Absolutely. very, very sick and they need <laughs> to take PPIs to take care of their, their stomachs. And so we start blaming the PPI, but it could be because of all of the other chronic diseases. And yes, statistical measures do adjust for these things, but in some papers where only ICD-9 codes are looked at and that relationship is not really assessed properly, yeah. maybe we can actually make some mistakes and you know exaggerate the effect of PPI rather than chronic diseases. I definitely think that's a factor and that uh, that's a perfect example of confounding variables. Um, uh, uh, being not taken into consideration. Absolutely. Um, the the other one is um, some PPIs potentially crossing blood-brain barrier, which was kind of scary, but uh, there have been some papers, two particular um, research articles that show that PPIs, um, specifically lansoprazole and omeprazole, have been reported to cross the blood-brain barrier and so they're able to directly affect the brain. Um, there's one researcher, Badiola, he showed that PPIs may be able to interact with some brain enzymes as well. Of course, these were animal model studies, so yeah. I don't know how much weight we should put on it, uh, but they did observe um, increased A-beta levels in an amyloid cell model um, <clears throat> after PPI treatment. So the immune response in the brain is quite uh, robust. And if there's ever a, uh, any uh, foreign substance that actually uh, crosses the blood-brain barrier, the brain will have a hyperactive response. Yeah. And what we also know that when the brain has hyperactive response, it also indirectly increases, not just indirectly, directly and indirectly increases amyloid burden, which is the abnormal protein that builds up in the Alzheimer's, as well as tau downstream. Yes. Tau. So... Um, yeah, if it is crossing blood-brain barrier, if it's perceived as a foreign substance in the, within the central nervous system, then the body's response might be so exaggerated that it might have negative consequences. Now, a lot of this is just we're postulating, we're yes. hypothesizing. Yes. Yeah, we found some evidence of crossing, but then we're creating the rest of the story. But but it's still those are that's how science moves. That's a weak data that we can actually work on, find out more. Right. Um, and similar to these mechanisms, one of the other mechanisms that have been studied is modulation of degradation of A-beta proteins by the lysosomes in microglia. So yeah. microglia are not able to break it down and get rid of it. I, do, I don't want to, you know, um, spend too much time on this because like you said, 
these are animal models uh, studies and there were just some postulations that were um, derived from very small, very specific mechanistic studies. Uh, the, the the other one that's about microbiome, I, I it's it's not that weak. There's some 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 evidence that if the microbiome is being affected because the pH is being affected, and we also know that although there's an incredible exaggeration of microbiome and its relationship with the brain, there really is. But there yes. is definitely a relationship, right? Whether it's the uh, it's the fa um, the uh, the the preservation of the blood brain barrier with the byproduct of what happens in the microbiome. Um, uh, uh, there is definitely a relationship. So if the microbiome is being affected chronically, then the assumption is that, of course, downstream, the product of that microbiome or lack thereof is going to affect the brain in many ways, at least the blood-brain barrier, at least the, um, um, uh, the penetration through the blood-brain barrier. So that's a little bit more viable and more meaningful uh, hypothesis. We, we, we want to kind of weigh the, the weight of that hypothesis. Absolutely. So, and, and the exact mechanism and the specific mi microbial changes that might influence brain function are still being explored and we don't have definitive um, ideas about that. Um, one of the other mechanisms that we put on the list that we actually read about was potential reduced cerebral blood flow. Um, and there is some evidence from a paper in circulation that was published in 2013 that showed that PPIs might reduce the level of nitric oxide in mm -hmm. the vascular endothelium, leading to reduced cerebral blood flow. Correct, correct. I mean, nitric oxide is, is a very important for multiple functions, but especially vasodilation, right, which right. allows interaction, which allows blood flow. So if the nitric oxide is reduced, vasoconstriction and right. less blood flow. That kind of makes sense. So, so that's another proposed mechanism. Yeah, although that really hasn't <clears throat> been firmly established as of yet, and there's there are no other studies that have explored that concept. But but talking about these are kind of fun. I love the physiology or proposed physiology because that's how hypotheses are created. That's how you, then you test it out. You 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 find out how uh, what uh, what mechanism truly is the consequence. Yeah, agreed. It's fun. Absolutely. They tried to highlight the fact that some PPIs have aluminum or some other metals and things that could pass through the blood-brain barrier and deposit in the brain and potentially lead or contribute to cognitive decline. But we don't really have good evidence for that because the amount of potential metals or any other item that needs to be filtered out of the body is so minute in these medications that I don't I don't think that that may be uh, one of the reasons. And they haven't really been proven as of yet. Correct. The next proposed mechanism is alteration of drug metabolism, which um, is makes sense. Um, PPIs can alter metabolism of certain drugs uh, and they can inhibit certain enzymes, such as the cytochrome uh, P450 enzyme. And that can potentially lead to increased level of some medication. They can become toxic yeah. and they could affect cognition or the neurovasculature for that or matter. Or decrease of others. For example, blood pressure medications and cholesterol medication, things of that nature. We we talk about, we learned this, uh, there's what a painful list of drugs that increase metabolism and those that decrease metabolism, yes. valproic acid, for example. So that's a real thing. There is drug-to-drug -drug interaction that most people don't even take into consideration, but but we now know there's a significant effect of certain drugs lowering the efficacy of some and increasing the efficacy of others, and right. and they might have consequences when it comes to blood pressure, cholesterol, and diabetes. So that's a mechanism that, to me at least, ostensibly, it seems more viable, more realistic. Right. So 
I think those were those were the list of potential mechanisms that I had um, with me that I that I read. Um, again, I don't think any of them are very specific. They're just associations, um, but they're important, and hopefully, we will have more opportunity to read, you know, do research on them, read more about them, learn them. Um, but the question is, where where do we go from here? What should people do going forward? Um, especially because of the fact that PPIs are so common and so many people are taking them. Uh, this is this part is very important because it's the uh, it's what kind of actions do we take uh, given the weight of the data? I mean, if you r remember the battles over vaccines, the battles over uh, it's not that I always say it's not that people are uh, it's not about truth, it's about the weight of truth. Uh, where is your data coming from? How realistic is it? How uh, what's the the, uh, um, uh, the the consistency of it? What's the validity of it over time? Um, so that's something that I would love for all of us to kind of learn together as far as how to weigh data. Mm -hmm. And then once we've weighed the data, given that weight, what's the action going forward? So what's the weight of this data? There it seems to be. Um, uh, uh, we can give it. There's now gradation of weight of data, you know, level three, level. So there's now pretty strong evidence that chronic use of PPIs might have an effect on our cognition over time. Uh, the degree of that cognitive decline has really not been uh, well established, but there seems to be some uh, strong relationship and in chronic use only. Mm -hmm. um, so at the minimum, we should be aware of that. That's actionable data and people should... Uh, be aware of not trying not to use PPIs long term and have alternatives. Right. But <clears throat> I also want to, um, you know, say this. There are a lot of our patients and lovely community members who have loved ones with Alzheimer's disease and advanced dementia that may be on PPI. And I don't think it would make a huge impact on them not taking <clears throat> their PPI. As a matter of fact, they might suffer because they usually are on a lot sense. of other medication and getting rid of PPI for people who have established dementia, especially if it's in the moderate to advanced stages, will not make a difference. That's such a good point. I mean, uh, the quality of uh, when do you, you uh, there are points that you have to start realizing that the, the, the return as far as cognitive decline or cognitive improvement is minimal. Although there are a lot of doctors making lots of money and saying things like they can reverse fulminant Alzheimer's, and that's such a um, terrible statement. It really is. But we definitely think that once a person is in fulminant Alzheimer's, the key is to make sure that they don't suffer. And, and if they have GERD or they have reflux, then definitely that's something that, uh, that uh, uh, they should be treated for. But for the rest, that's a relation between you, your doctor, your other confounding variables such as blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, other medications, your dietary patterns, your lifestyle patterns. With, with all that taken into consideration, you might have to be on PPIs for a short term until some of the other pathways are put into place. Uh, but but uh, it's not an all or none. It's not binary. Um, uh, so it should be in that more complex approach that we find um, uh, how to deal with this. Beautiful, yeah. yeah. But definitely long-term for those who don't have dementia, uh, I w at this point, I would be confident enough to say uh, I, people should start thinking uh, of alternatives to PPIs long-term. Right. And and there yeah. are, so not although not everybody will respond to lifestyle. 
That's true. Mm-hmm. A great m- many will respond to lifestyle. We know things like alcohol exacerbate you know, reflux yes. and acid. And we know that caffeine does. We know that um, stress does. We mm-hmm. know that lack of sleep does. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, uh, the foods that you're in, citrusy foods yes. do. And we know that chocolate does. We know that the big one, fatty foods, foods that have lots of saturated fat do. Uh, so those are things, and, and we can go over the list. Those are things that can be altered and in, in altering that, you don't just affect acid reflux. You also affect your cholesterol. You also affect your diabetes. You also affect your uh, uh, diseases across the board. <clears throat> Here's we are again talking about lifestyle. and But I, I hope we did it in a nuanced way and, and not in an all or none kind of a way. Right. I There's think a that's place for important. medication. Mm-hmm. There's a place for a graded transition yeah. of medication. But lifestyle has a big part, especially in this disease. Absolutely. So just to kind of summarize the dietary components that you talked about, um, fatty foods can trigger reflux. Um, caffeinated uh, beverages or caffeine in general can also relax the lower esophageal sphincter and it can lead to acid reflux. So, you know, finding out specifically what your risk factors are and working with your healthcare provider to uh, take care of them would be very important. Smoking is another risk factor for acid reflux. Nicotine also lowers the esophageal sphincter, making smokers susceptible for having gastric esophageal reflux disease. Um, Alcohol, excessive alcohol can irritate the esophagus and the linings of the stomach. Body weight, having, you know, obesity increases abdominal pressure. And so the stomach is pushed up against the diaphragm and it weakens the sphincters. Mm -hmm. And so the content of the stomach actually regurgitates into the esophagus. That's actually fairly common. So people have to get bundle plication surgeries and other kind of surgeries to close that off. And yeah. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, there are some people that may not have these risk factors and yet they still have reflux disease. So um, we always get that question like, I'm healthy, I'm doing this and that, not alcohol, no smoking, nothing, but I still have GERD. And that's quite possible. It has probably something to do with your anatomy. There is, you know, there are conditions where there is a hernia or a hiatal hernia or some sort of a bulge in the stomach wall or the esophagus where the acid doesn't stay in the stomach and keeps coming Mm -hmm. up towards the esophagus. So some people may need to be on PPIs or they may need some other treatments. Or the pylorises, which is the sphincter going from the stomach to the small intestine, it's too tight or rigid or actually sclerosed. Exactly. So that the acid is not emptying and it's staying in the stomach and going back up. So, so lots true. of other reasons as well. Yeah. So working with a, <clears throat> you know, a qualified um, GI specialist or a GI uh, surgeon who is very well versed in these conditions is very, very important. Um, and, uh, you know, regardless of what you just heard today, like Dean said earlier, like we mentioned earlier, there will be times when you would have to take PPIs. Um, and, you know, that in itself could actually be life-saving. There are conditions where mm-hmm. you have to take PPIs to prevent the um, excoriation of your esophagus. Barrett's esophagus can actually change into cancer if people don't treat it properly. So, Or um, ulcers. Or ulcers, exactly. So it's, uh, it's, I know that I'm perseverating here, but I think it's very important for people to know that there's a lot of different layers and nuance to this conversation than the use of PPIs. I, I, you said the word nuance. I hope the audience that, that, that comes and listens to us recognizes the repetition of nuance. It, it, we, we usually try not to be binary. Yes, no, you know, uh, one way or the other. It's, it's nuance 
And nuance does not mean paralysis. Nuance means um, taking the data and, and moving along with the data and, 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 and all the complexities of a human being in their life. Um, that's, that's the way it has to be. I'll tell you guys an example. Um, I was in clinic day before yesterday and I had a patient who read this paper. So she is, she is amazing. She's very well informed and she, uh, you know, she's not in the medical field, but she reads all of the articles in the green journal that come out with regards to cognitive decline. And she read this paper. So this paper was published on the 9th of August. And so I remember her emailing me. I never got to my email on time. So I'm going to talk to her later, but she read the paper. She cut her PPI. She stopped taking her uh, cholesterol medication and she stopped taking some of her blood pressure medication. She said, I've had it. These medications are changing my body. And if this is changing my gut, the cholesterol medication is changing my brain. I'm not going to take anything. And she came in and her blood pressure systolic was 197. Diastolic oh. was close to 100. And my nurse kind of panicked. She's like, what do you want me to do? Should we send her to urgent care? So we took care of her in the clinic. But I found out that she was so upset and nervous about taking medications that she just let go of everything. So I actually had to delineate between all of these medications and say, well, PPIs could potentially change the you know, microbiome. However, your cholesterol medication is life-saving. It prevents your strokes and it can definitely prevent the damage to your arteries and your brain as well. So again, nuance is important. Um, just because one medication is associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease doesn't mean all medications are bad. And it would be very important for each and every one of us, and especially you listeners, to speak with your healthcare providers before making any decision about taking or not taking any medication. Beautiful. All right, perfect. Well, that was it for uh, us. This was a fascinating uh, conversation. I, I loved it because it goes into the mechanisms, consequences as far as uh, its relation with other elements in your body, uh, and 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 it's uh, it's going to become more clear as we go along. Yeah. Uh, we're we're just beginning to see this relationship. Uh, so uh, keep your ears open and let's see what the new data comes up with in the next few years. Absolutely. And as always, you know, prevention matters, awareness matters. Lifestyle matters. Lifestyle matters. And conversations matter too. Absolutely. Uh, making sure that we make um, the best decisions for our health. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us today. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe and follow our podcast on Apple or Spotify and watch the recordings on our YouTube channel. We would appreciate you supporting this show with your review as it helps it reach more people. We look forward to connecting again in the next episode.